This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week we're talking about our new print magazine, which we are calling The Year That Changed Journalism. Obviously, that change was driven almost entirely by our new president, Donald Trump. And here to discuss that with me is my president, my boss, <laughs> our editor-in-chief, Kyle Pope. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thanks. That's an awesome introduction. So when we look at the past year, what changes have we undergone as an industry and what sort of adjustments do we still need to make? I mean, on the one hand, it's almost like what hasn't changed. Um, it seems fundamentally different. I mean, it's, um, it, I mean, you need a kind of way back machine to remember what it was like before the election. Um, but we still thought the story was going to be about um, business models in journalism and how are we going to pay for our work and, you know, what was the next, what was the next shoe to drop in terms of layoffs and whatever. That's still there, and I mean, I've, I always think that we've been sort of given a respite on those issues. They haven't gone away; they're still there. But, um, but so much else is so different. Um, and I think, on the one hand, that this year has been really good for journalism. It's it's like put what we do in a in a hot spotlight, and it's highlighted some amazing work. I think journalists as people, and we can talk about that in our own newsroom, but. There's there there's a you know people are really jazzed up and rejuvenated and they sort of like remember here's why we're doing what we're doing and I'm excited and there's a sense of mission and a sense of purpose which I think is cool and the stuff you're talking about has been driven by the election of Trump and some of the storylines surrounding that yeah I mean Trump's changed everything I mean he's he's threatened journalism but he's also forced forced journalists and media organizations to make a case for why they're important and why readers should care and, frankly, why readers should pay. And that case is, has been effective. I mean, subscriptions across the industry are are way up. But we could also, there is a danger that we sugarcoat this, or at least that I can sometimes, because I actually, I actually think that there's been a lot of good that's come out of this. But there are real threats, um, real reporters. I mean, we had this conference in Atlanta where we laid out the issue, and Ben Jacobs was there from The Guardian, who I think was on the podcast last week. I mean, you know, he was he was assaulted by a congressman. Um, so this there's real implications to this. Um, I think that Trump very effectively has eroded trust in media in general. Um, so we really have to sort of pause and think about why that is and why there's a fertile audience for that and what we can do about it. But um, it's like it's you know sometimes sometimes. It, excitement is both scary and fun. And I just think it's this has been by far the most exciting year that I've had in my career. Yeah, those topics that you mentioned, whether it's threats to the press, uh, issues that have been raised by certain actions or statements by Trump, like the role of race in our reporting, both in our newsrooms and the stories we cover. Uh, we have pieces on those in the magazine, which we're steadily putting up at CJR.org. One of the pieces that we have looks at Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law and sort of do-everything advisor, uh, you were his first editor at The Observer and wrote a piece about your two years or so. Uh, 18 months. 18 months. 18 of the best months of my life. Interesting. So <laughs> the story starts out with a window into Kushner's view on 
media and journalism. Uh, it's you telling him you can't say hit job in here. Yeah. I mean, I, I decided to write this story because, I mean, one, I was just in- increasingly perplexed as I would see these stories about how Jared was the sort of uh, stabilizing influence in the Trump administration or was the guy along with Ivanka who would be who would sort of push back at the more extremist views of 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 Trump, whether it was about foreign policy or pretty much anything, including Trump's view of the press, which is let's face it, it is one of the central themes of his entire administration. Yeah, it's one of the only arguments he has kind of that to rile up and bring together his base. And I actually think it is right now it's the only thing that he has that the base is really into. I mean, because he's sort of lost out on health care. The wall's not really going anywhere. Uh, foreign policy is sort of all over the map. But but when he attacks the press, that's the one thing he can get he can get people really to rally around. So, you know, I, I, I was sort of, it sort of made me go back and think about my time with with working with Jared and trying to see were there signs of this Trumpian anti-press strategy even when I was at the Observer. You have to remember that Jared's persona when I was working with him was entirely different than his persona. What I don't even know what his persona is now exactly, but at the time, he and Ivanka were seen as these very cool, progressive, even uh, cosmopolitan hipsters. They were, you know, they would go to Vanity Fair parties. They would go to the Met Costume Ball. They were, like, really making a name for themselves in New York City as a, as sort of whatever, New York City sophisticates. Right, and that comes across in the piece. You talk about them hanging out with kind of the elite of New York cosmopolitan culture, but it doesn't seem like a love for or support as a benefactor of the press was part of uh, Jared's portfolio even back then. Yeah. So the the longer I worked with Jared, the more confused I got about why he owned a newspaper in the first place, um, because he didn't seem to like journalists. He didn't seem to be that interested in what journalists did. He didn't seem to read uh, certainly what The Observer wrote, but but what almost anybody else wrote. <laughs> And so I was, I, you know, it, it became a, just a mystery in my mind. Like, why does this guy bother with it, with any of this? And then as my time, I mean, I was one of five editors that worked with him before he got rid of the paper. And, um, and a lot of the editors had similar stories to mine. And we all sort of thought there was this weird sort of disdain for the people in the newsroom. And, um, and that's partly what I was trying to get at in the story. And it's and it's, you clearly see that with Trump, right? Um, I mean, Trump takes disdain to a whole different level in terms of how he views the press. But I think it was there with Jared, too. Yeah, I mean, this idea of Jared and Ivanka as the moderating influences, uh, it's interesting in this one area where Trump has really pushed beyond any boundaries we've seen before, that what comes across in your piece is that Jared is no moderating influence there. No, no. And, 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 and it's a weird, you know, and the other thing I talked about in the, in the piece, it's, it's a really weird psychology at play here. Because, you know, if you, if you really don't like the press, why buy a newspaper? If you feel like he does that, I mean, there's a there's an incredible backstory involving his father who went to prison for partly uh, one of the things that he did was he tried to threaten his brother-in-law against cooperating with federal authorities by trying to blackmail him. And and the family, um, I know, blamed the the press, especially the New Jersey media, for helping to bring down his dad. Jared and his father are very, very close. 
In fact, the whole family is very close. So I always, the the more I got into it, I was like, so here you have a son who loves his father. The whole family feels that the press did them wrong. Um, again, like, what is the psychology in which you would then go out and buy a newspaper and employ a bunch of journalists? Yeah, it's a fascinating story. It's a great window into one of the figures uh, in the Trump orbit, this administration that has attacked the press like none before it. Uh, but, but one more thought on this, just that I think that the weird sort of uh, conflicting psychology that you see with Jared, you see with Trump too. Trump loves the attention and cannot live without it. He needs the press desperately. And, and we, another piece that I think is terrific in the magazine is written by Lloyd Grove from the Daily Beast, who was involved in covering Trump for the New York Daily News and, and has a piece about Trump's relationship with the tabloids. And there it is. A, it's, a, it's clearly a two-way street where Trump is getting as much as he's giving. And he's working with the tabloid press. He's desperate to be on their, in their good graces. He sort of thrives off of the attention. I think you still see that even today. I mean, I don't understand all of Trump's psychology or even a little bit of it, but it does seem that whenever the story starts to shift a little bit away from him, he has an uncanny ability to sort of grab it back. And then as soon as he grabs it back and gets attention he doesn't like, he pushes it away again. So it's a very, very complicated, deeply rooted thing between Trump and the press that is not dissimilar from Jared's with the press. Right. And that push and pull is something that we will obviously continue to deal with throughout the presidency. Uh, It's a great piece. It is up at CJRA.org, along with the piece you mentioned by Lloyd Grove and several of the other pieces from the magazine. More coming over the next week or so. So we encourage everybody to check it out. But Kyle, thanks for being here to talk about it. Thanks a lot. The story dominating the media, journalism, Hollywood world this week is obviously the downfall of movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. The story was broken last Thursday by Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy of the New York Times. It was followed up earlier this week by a a bombshell expose from Ronan Farrow in The New Yorker. And there are tons of deep cultural, societal, industry issues that this story raises. There's sort of a journalistic angle to this that is really interesting. And to join me for that conversation, I have CJR Delacorte Fellows, Meg Dalton and Karen K. Ho. Um, Karen, Ronan Farrow's story for The New Yorker is especially interesting for us at CJR. I think it's because it was supposed to go to a completely different outlet. It was no secret that he was, you know, he had a longstanding relationship with NBC News. Uh, it was, you know, when that was announced, it was a really big deal. And so the question came out when it was released through The New Yorker um, in this big multimedia online rollout, why didn't NBC have it, you know? And then the details emerged that he had even invested his own money to have a, a television crew record the interviews. Right. So let's back up a little bit that Ronan Farrow was an NBC contributor. He started reporting this story back in January for NBC. He obtained a really disturbing recording from the New York Police Department going back to a 2015 sting operation they had organized. Um, But Meg, from what we've learned since then, what happened? Why didn't this run with NBC? Basically, they said that it just wasn't solid enough. There wasn't as enough reporting done for it, where, you know, whereas Ronan Farrow kind of refutes that claim. 
Um, he didn't really want to go into too much detail with Rachel Maddow the other night. He wants to focus more on the actual story and not on himself. And I mean, the other thing that bothers me too about this is like, this is not the first time that NBC has kind of lost a scoop that is related to the treatment of women. I mean, NBC famously didn't put out the Access Hollywood grab him by the pussy tapes of Donald Trump. Um, and so it kind of like makes you think a little bit more deeply about NBC and the way that it decides what is and, and isn't appropriate for I don't know, broadcast. And it's not just NBC. This is, as we've learned more and more about Harvey Weinstein and his behavior, the phrase open secret has been used over and over again. And part of the question that that phrase and what we've learned from people in Hollywood and reporters raises is why wasn't this broken earlier? Why was he allowed to continue in his position of influence and power for so long when so many people know this? I mean, Gawker had a story in 2015 citing numerous blind items from gossip columns asking for dirt on him. There are power dynamics here that occur in Hollywood, obviously, but also in the media world. And this week, after the Times story and after the New Yorker story, a lot of those questions are being asked. Michelle Dean said it best on Twitter. She said, there's a huge gulf between what a journalist knows and what can be published. And I think that was a huge thing. I mean, there are already articles compiling all the sorts of hints that were in shows like 30 Rock about this incident, like multiple incidents or the rumors swirling around. And the problem was, you know, in terms of what could finally be nailed down definitively um, with, you know, and legal checked all the way. And and that was really difficult. And it wasn't for lack of trying for a long time. And also, like, it's it's reflective of, of Harvey Weinstein as a figure himself in Hollywood, but also in media. Like, you know, he was at his peak you know, a decade, two decades ago. And as his star power dwindled, it became much easier to to, to report this out, right? Because he wasn't as, as threatening or menacing to the people trying to tackle this behemoth of the story. Similar to what played out with Bill Cosby and Roger Ailes to an extent. Yeah, and, and Bill O'Reilly. Like, I mean, all of the reporting in the last year with regards to these powerful men, like, it's, it's a reflection of not only maybe the culture that's changing, but also the fact that they're also maybe losing their own power. It can, it can be really difficult as a woman, though, to see all the accusations. You know, there were dozens against Bill Cosby, and he was not convicted. And, and so even when you have this swell, like we are going into the dozens now of people, of actresses who have spoken out regarding what they knew or had encountered or had personally experienced. And so you're making a cost-benefit judgment about, you know, why is it important to speak out if it, if the likelihood of any sort of legal justice isn't really going to happen. You know, there's no consequence, essentially. It's like, it's great to speak out. It's great to shed light on all of this. But if nothing happens, like, what's the point? Doing so is incredibly brave. And there isn't a lot of focus on that bravery because by doing so, you're putting yourself on the line for an enormous amount of harassment and um, scrutiny by all of your peers, you know, everyone you've ever looked for, and your reputation immediately changes. And what you're known for immediately changes. All of your accomplishments, like Asha Argento won the equivalent of two Oscars in Italy. And now her name is associated with this story first, more than any of her other professional and personal accomplishments. And as Anthony Bourdain's girlfriend. 
Like everybody keeps referring to her as that. And I'm like, she's so much more than that. <laughs> well, in, in those stories of women who do speak out, at least early on in this, we saw for all of the great reporting that went into it, eventually exposing this, there was media complicity in smearing those women, in, in printing the negative items that Harvey Weinstein would plant. The New York Post splashed Amber Gutierrez's face on the front page and detailed sordid stories and rumors from her past when she accused Harvey Weinstein of assault and went to the police about it. And I think that's just illustrative of the power dynamics playing out that you know we just have to be more aware of. And when you talk about the, what did you say, the, the like, Good, good part of this. Oh, and I, the, the the good part of this is like so. Oftentimes, we, we we so often pit one outlet versus another outlet. But in this case, the reporting from the New York Times, from Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor, and then from the New Yorker with Ron Farrell, it was more. It, it actually helped reinforce the others' reporting. So in in that regard, the I didn't view them as like com- competing for the story or the scoop. It was more like together they helped kind of shed light on this kind of systemic problem. It was really interesting to see how quickly they had to, you could tell that they had to rewrite um, their follow-up stories or the introductions in terms of saying, this is actually reinforcing or backing up the reporting that we already have with this story. Because Jody actually, you know, that was a series. She did the initial story mm-hmm. on Thursday, and then there was a rollout, right, of everything that happened afterwards um, regarding Harvey Weinstein's team, the reaction, and then additional accounts of what had happened between actresses or women in the industry and Harvey. As journalists, we're getting a lot better at covering this issue in other industries, um, but I am still skeptical uh, when it comes to covering it within our own industry, i.e. the news media world. Thanks for kicking it with us, and we'll see you next week.